0: January 15th, 2009. US Airways Flight 1549 took off from LaGuardia, and the passengers were looking forward to leaving behind the snowy, cold New York City, and they were looking forward to getting to a warmer climate, Charlotte, North Carolina. Less than three minutes after takeoff, barely 3,000 feet of altitude. 1549 hit a flock of geese. Passengers said that they heard bang, bang, and then a deafening silence. No engines. 208 seconds later, 1549 was floating in the numbingly cold waters of the Hudson River. Remarkably, 150 passengers, three flight attendants, the captain and the first officer, there were no serious injuries. Everybody walked away with just minor cuts and scrapes. All of this took place over one of the most populated cities in the entire world. How can that be? It's the pilots. It's the pilots. Now, there are a lot of uh, professions that we respect. We respect doctors. We respect firefighters. We respect police officers. We respect soldiers and Marines. But as far as people that we admire on that list, number one, are pilots. It's calm and confidence in the face of chaos. When things are at their worst is when pilots are at their very best. Now, if you compare the transcript of the cockpit voice recorder from 1549 with that script from Sully, there is no Hollywood embellishment. The pilots in the cockpit that day were just as cool as the actors in the movie, how can they be so cool under such intense pressure? There's a couple reasons. One is they have a checklist. They have a checklist for everything. So they don't forget the big stuff and sometimes the small stuff, which could be the big stuff. And the other thing they do is they practice. They practice all the time. When they're not in the cockpit flying, they're somewhere in a simulator. And when they're not in a simulator... In their mind, in their spare moments, what they're doing is they're imagining a scenario that is horrific. And then if that happens, then I do this. But if that happens, then I would do this. And the reason that they do this is because every time they fly, the stakes are life and death. So our scripture reading today is Acts 7, 54 through 60. Now, we're going to refer back to a couple of spots earlier in Acts, so if you want to keep your Bible open, that'd be great. But this is about Stephen when things were at their worst, he was at his best. The Stoning of Stephen, New International Version, starts at 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the, witness, the, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell to his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said that, he fell asleep. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So for a few weeks now, we've been doing a sermon series on Acts. And Acts tells a story about how the apostles were rolling out the church. It talks about the ups and downs. It talks a lot about their growing pains because some days... They might have added a few people, some days they were adding hundreds of people, some days they added thousands of people to the church. The backdrop to all of this is how the apostles were creating a huge problem for the Jewish religious establishment at the time. So our, our scripture today is centered around Stephen and his very brief time as a Christian and how his story can help today. Stephen was he was not a native of Jerusalem, he was a foreigner. But he was a rabbi, and maybe the other interesting thing about him was he was a brilliant religious scholar. He knew all of the Jewish religious doctrine inside and out like the back of his hands. As soon as he heard the apostles preaching the story of Jesus, he immediately joined them and started to preach himself. It's said that his preaching ability was amazing. It was uncanny, and probably a lot of that had to do with the fact that he rolled into his sermons a lot of that religious scripture from the Jewish Bible. Maybe what's also interesting about him is that while the apostles were focused on preaching to, they they were focused on converting Jews, and Stephen did that too, but Stephen also was reaching out to the non-Jews, to those that were not churched. So the religious authorities started to get worried. Now, before, at the start of Acts, we see the religious authorities, they're just a little bit annoyed. So this guy, Peter, he performs a miracle at the back of the temple. There's a guy that hasn't walked for his whole life, and Peter performs a miracle, and he stands up and he walks out. That's annoying. And so for that, they arrested him, and they gave him a stern warning. A little bit later in Acts, we see the apostles getting a little bit, uh, feeling their oats a little bit. So they actually, they start to preach just outside the temple. And as people are walking into the temple, they hear this rabble outside, and they go, I wonder what this is. Let's go listen to this. That was even more annoying. The religious authorities arrested them, they put them in jail, they flogged them, gave them a sterner warning, and sent them on their way. But now, now these Christians, they are picking off our rabbis. They're picking off the best and brightest of us. And we have to stop this now. So this sets the stage for a showdown. They had to make an example of Stephen, Stephen because he was one of them. And now he's one of those guys. He, As far as they were concerned, he was a traitor. So they pick him up, they bring him in, put him in jail, and they put him on trial. So it would have looked something like this. The defendant, Stephen, would have stood here. The high priest would have been there and the horseshoe of the Sanhedrin would have gone to about there. Imagine what that would have been like. A cavernous room, no doors, no windows, no natural light. Stephen would have been surrounded by 70 or 80 angry faces cloaked in brightly colored robes, depending on what rank they were inside the hierarchy of the Sanhedrin. They were so close to him that he could feel probably the heat of their breath. It was so quiet at the start that all you could hear was the popping of the torches on the wall that provided the light. And the room, the room smelled like a mixture of a high school locker room and the mustiness of your grandmother's root cellar. And so the high priest says to Stephen, Stephen, by preaching the teachings of this Jesus Christ, you have committed blasphemy against God, Moses, the law, and the temple. How do you plead? And Stephen is all alone in the midst of all of this. He's on trial for blasphemy of the big four pillars of Judaism. He knows that he's on trial for his life, life and death. He should have been terrified... But he calmly starts his defense. Now this starts a little bit earlier in Acts 7. But what he starts to do is he starts to talk about their common history. He talks, he starts with Abraham and the the blessings that God had bestowed upon Abraham. And he recounts this history because the Sanhedrin starts to nod because they've known this story ever since they were kids. They were nodding because they agreed. They had to. He recounts the history of uh, Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers, and how he ends up in Egypt, and how, in turn, Moses ends up in Egypt. And then as he's going through the story, he points out how these revered names that they have all known for their whole lives, and really Israel as a whole, has ignored And defied God over and over again. He points out that as soon as God and Moses had freed their ancestors from Pharaoh, almost immediately after that, how did they thank God? They built a golden calf and they worshipped it. So the Sanhedrin now is starting to get a little bit restless. But he continues on. And the Sanhedrin starts to realize that Stephen, in fact, is not trying to defend himself, that he doesn't feel like he's on trial, but he is, in fact, indicting them and putting them on trial. He has flipped things around, and he is now trying the Sanhedrin for blasphemy. He indicts Israel for the execution of the Messiah, and he presents Jesus as the Messiah. even calmly addresses, but forcefully addresses, the Sanhedrin. I believe in God, you do not. I believe in Moses, you do not. I believe in the law, you break it every day. I believe in the temple, it has been destroyed and you, re- you rebuilt it for a third time. What is the fastest way to make a hypocrite angry, call them on their hypocrisy. You expose them. You can start to feel the room at a boil. Stephen continues, verse 51 You stiff necked people, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received a law that was given through the angels, but you have not obeyed. So what he means by that, when he says, you are stiff-necked, he says, you are stubborn like an ox in a yoke pulling a plow. And when he says, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, what he means is you put yourself ahead of God. Your piety is only for show. So now, you might imagine, the room is boiling. They are angry. They're furious. They're fist pumps. They're yelling at him. And yet, Stephen stays completely calm, calm in the face of life and death. They had heard the truth from Jesus They had seen his miracles. They had heard the truth from the apostles, and they had seen their miracles. And they ignored, they refuted, they repudiated, they rejected, they denied, they mocked. They nailed Jesus to a cross because he exposed their hypocrisy. So here's the final straw. When they had tried Jesus in this very room and the high priest had asked him, are you the Messiah? And Jesus said, I am. And then he continued on and he said, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Almighty. And they killed him for blasphemy. So in 55... Verse 55, Stephen, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's what they killed Jesus for. And now Stephen's confirming it. So in 57, at this point, they covered their ears yelling at the top of their voices and they rushed him and they dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. They killed him. They killed him. The first martyr for Christ. So what Stephen had in fact done was he'd rewound them back to when they had another prisoner on trial for blasphemy. The same place, the same people. They had to kill him. They can't kill Jesus for blasphemy and not kill Stephen for claiming the same thing, that Jesus is the Messiah and seated at the right hand of the Father. And they didn't just kill him, they stoned him. Now, if you look at the pantheon of executions, if you look at at hanging and beheading and even crucifixion, those are spectator events. A stoning is a participation event. You have to be really worked up to do that. And the Scripture says that everyone was removing their garments and they were laying them at a young man named Saul. They were laying them at his feet. Saul, who becomes one of the biggest persecutors of Christians, a bounty hunter, if you will, but then also later becomes Paul. So they've removed their garments because what they're doing, in fact, is they are grabbing boulders about this big, about 10 or 20 pounds. They are lifting them above their head, and they're throwing as hard as they can at Stephen. Everybody feels vindicated after a stoning because everybody has blood on their hands. Why were they so angry? Remember, how do you make a hypocrite angry? You expose him. So during the stoning, while these people were dropping rocks on him, Stephen is calm. He's kneeling. And he's calm in death. He looks at heaven and he says, Father, Forgive them for their sins. And he died. First martyr for Christ. Jesus knew that he was going to die, and Stephen knew that he was going to die, and yet they both died calmly. At the time they were dying, they both looked at heaven, they asked God to forgive their persecutors, and they both asked God to forgive them for what they were doing. How can that be? Stephen died calmly because he was full of the Holy Spirit. For Stephen, when things were at their worst for him, he was at his best. How many times have we been in a situation where they said that And then I said this, oh, I should have said this. How many times have we been in a situation where we wish we could do it over because we totally blew it? How many drop passes, missed putts, dents in the car, harsh words to somebody that didn't deserve it? If you look back over the the course of a life, most of the time, most of us in those situations, we blow it. Think back in your life, if every one of those situations that you blew, what, how would your life be different today if you had done it perfectly? All right, so we can't go back in time. But what if going forward, every one of those situations that we historically blow, what if we get that right? Every single time. Now, it's unlikely that any of us will be on trial for our lives. It's unlikely that any of us will be asked to land an Airbus in the middle of the Hudson River. But close your eyes and imagine for a second your worst nightmare. What would that be? Serious illness, divorce, job loss. Whatever it is, think about that and then imagine no matter what, no matter how awful the situation is, that each of us have inside the power to handle it perfectly. The power of the Holy Spirit is here to make, a, to make our worst moments our best. The Holy Spirit is in us all the time, but the Holy Spirit is not going to wrestle with us. The Holy Spirit is not going to say, my aircraft and take over. That part is up to us. We have to decide that the Holy Spirit is in charge, and then we hand over control. how do we do this? Well, I would suggest the way that we do this is the same way that pilots do. They use a checklist and they practice. So our checklist is when you're in a situation where you know what's about to happen and you're like, I'm going to blow this, go, like he was saying before, Yahweh, take a deep breath, send yourself, and as you breathe out, call in the Holy Spirit. That's number one. Number two, pray. Prayer. Number three, trust in God. Now, all that seems really simple until we put it into practice, and then we realize that it takes practice for that to be simple. We have to practice just like pilots do. So, when do we do that? In our spare moments but you say, I don't have any spare moments. I'm busy raising kids, I got a job, you don't know what it's like. Oh, my gosh. Everybody has spare moments. When you are in Austin traffic, instead of pulling out your phone and checking text, practice. When you're at HEV and you're standing at the checkout line and you're looking at the tabloids, practice. When we all lay our head down on the pillow and before we go to sleep... Practice. We practice so that we're prepared for those moments when chaos and disaster strike. Life is at its worst, so we are prepared to be at our best. Let God and the Holy Spirit take the wheel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our prayer today is simple. Life is nothing but a serious But a series of challenges, challenges that we are so tempted to take head on and on our own. Help us to remember that we can't. Help us to remember that those trials can only be overcome with the help of the Holy Spirit. Help us to find in our hearts a thimble of the Holy Spirit. And then when we have that, help us to find a cup, and then a bucket, and then a bushel, and then a barrel until our hearts are overflowing so much so that we can confront any challenge that life throws at us. In your son's name we pray, amen.